With the COVID virus still peaking all across this country, a good portion of my own literary life these days has moved from the physical to the virtual. Where, in the recent past, we at Books and Books would welcome hundreds of authors into our stores to celebrate their new books, today we bring these celebrations online through Zoom, Crowdcast, and other virtual platforms. This allows us and bookstores everywhere to continue to provide the kind of rich programming that has always been a very prominent part of our mission. On this week's offering of The Literary Life, it's my great pleasure to bring you a selection from one of our most recent virtual broadcasts. The author Otessa Mashveg has been on everyone's reading list for years. Her first novel, Eileen, was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Man Booker Prize, and it won the Penn Hemingway Award for Debut Fiction. My Year of Rest and Relaxation was a New York Times bestseller, and her new novel, Death in Her Hands, has just been published. It's been published as an Indie Next number one pick and to wonderful reviews. She was interviewed by Christina Nasti, the events coordinator at Books and Books, and as you'll hear, a huge fan of Otessa. So sit back, listen, and I hope you enjoy. So hello, Otessa. I wanted to start by thanking you for your work. You are a truly gifted writer and an artist of extreme sensitivity. Your books are each and every one a gift for readers. They've meant a lot to me personally, and you have many fans at Books and Books. The characters that you create are unforgettable. Let me just quickly go through some of them in your books. McGlue, the title character of your 2014 novella, is a drunk sailor in prison for killing his best friend. In your novel, Eileen, the protagonist, is a laxative, addicted prison clerk turned accessory to murder who enables her father's alcoholism. In your collection of short stories, Homesick for Another World, You've written characters who are all unsteady on their feet in one way or another, yearning for connection, but often tripped up by their own baser impulses. In my year of rest and relaxation, the unnamed protagonist is a gorgeous, well-educated, and affluent 24-year-old woman who decides she wants to take a year off to sleep, to regenerate her cells, and turn into a better version of herself. I can't tell you how many copies of this book I personally hand-sold. It seems to me that if there's one thing that unites your characters, it's their need to escape constrictions of their milieu, their upbringing, their bodies, their own minds. What is it, do you think, that draws you to create characters that exist on the margins of society? And can you tell us what it's like to write them since they come from you but they have a life of their own? Well, to answer your first question first, I would just say that society is a difficult thing to describe in terms of its marginality. I mean, I think that there are very few people who would self-identify as not marginal. I mean, anyone who's ever felt weird feels marginal. Like anyone who 
I mean, I think that we have this idea that there's a group of people who have perfectly functioning psyches who go around like doing stuff and never question anything. Like that's society. And then everybody else who's self-reflective or self-conscious or curious about anything other than doing the thing is on the, in the margin. And I guess like if anything in this, on this topic, like if anything, I think I would just like to say like, maybe we need to get rid of the like margins and just have everyone included, you know? Um, because it's a way of saying that being peculiar or being dissatisfied or being critical means that you're, you're not included and, um, and that you're, and that you're on the outside, which infers that there's an inside and there is no inside. And I think that the, the idea that there's an inside is like a, a, a fabrication. Um, so that's out of the way, <laughs> but I would say that um, I'm interested in characters who um, whose interiority can betray their exterior personas, and I'm interested in characters who have interesting minds, and interesting minds to me are minds that question themselves or build illusions around themselves. <clears throat> so I tend to construct characters that are in conflict with who they are, what they're what they think they should do, or what they are doing. Um, they're in conflict with themselves and their desires and appetites, and um, much of the way that they relate to the world is filtered through their relationship to themselves. But that's just how I imagine people to be in reality, actually, and how they end up speaking through me on the page. Amazing. Okay, so now we have Death in Her Hands, your newest novel. Um, the book was a number one indie next pick for May, but the release was pushed back to June because of the pandemic. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Indie Next list reflects the books that booksellers at independent bookstores around the nation are reading and loving the most. So you were number one. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so can I ask you, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship to bookstores? And do you have a neighborhood bookshop where you shop, where you hang out? That's a really fun question. Um I have a relationship to bookstores. You know, I had a pretty good relationship with bookstores when I was young. And then I think it was around the time that like Barnes and Noble started to have like a massive uh, like surge, just they like popping up everywhere. My relationship to bookstores really shifted. And I remember just feeling kind of horrified in Barnes and Noble, like wandering around. And it was, that was also the time where I was <clears throat> realizing that I was a writer and um, 
seeing books in such a sterile, impersonal, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be talking badly about Barnes and Noble, but I'm just going to, I'm gonna talk about it in the past tense. Like it really hurt my spirit to see books institutionalized and put into this like very capitalistic um, franchise that sort of like bleached away my curiosity about like roaming around and touching things and discovering things because so much about that ex- like reading for me it was like finding the book you know like holding it in your hands and that's how I grew up my mom was a person who um was definitely not a minimalist. She had piles and piles and piles and shelves of books everywhere from on every topic in every genre. And the way that I would select a book, not knowing anything about what was in it, but I would feel their spines and then pull it out and, you know, weigh it in my hand. And like, you know, I understood that a book has a soul. And to when you take books that are souls and you put them in um, like a, really sterile environment it it hurts mm-hmm. <laughs> as an author so i and also i would get um these like waves of like jealousy going around touch like looking at things at, at at a certain point when i knew that i had all these books in me but i hadn't written them yet mm-hmm. and i would feel kind of angry when i would be in a bookstore and I was also so poor, I couldn't afford, I couldn't like afford to buy a new hardcover book. Um, books aren't cheap, you know. So, like to to go in and purchase one is a major event. Um, and it's also, you know, it can be a commitment of time and space and energy. And um, I'm trying to think of books more in that way, like. You know, I still buy a lot of books that I don't read, but the books that I do read, I see as commitments. Not that I always, you know, I might dump a book halfway through or quarter of the way through, but it's still like there's a, I'm, I'm like shaking hands with it and saying, I will, I will do this. Let's get back to the book and let's talk about the protagonist. Vesta Gull is a 72-year-old widow. Her husband has recently died, and she's moved into a cabin in the middle of the woods with her dog, Charlie. They live in relative peace and isolation until one day, one, on one of their walks, Vesta happens upon a handwritten note on the ground that states, her name was Magda. Nobody will ever know who killed her. It wasn't me. Here is her dead body. Except... There is no body anywhere to be found, and so begins Vesta's obsession with solving the mystery of who is Magda, who killed her, and where is her body. Um, you've described Vesta as a woman who chose to live in isolation, to find peace toward the end of her life, and in the process encounters her imagination. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how Vesta was born and what you mean? Vesta... Um, Vesta's birth was a very gentle birth, and she introduced herself to me with a lot of polite, 
politeness and reservation. So I got to know her through writing her. And, um, and I got to know her as the reader first, because he, her character is born out of this anonymous note. And it appears in the book, and the reader, you, reads it at the same time Vesta's reading it. So Vesta is the reader, and the rest of the book is her response. Is her response to that note. Um, so she was a character born out of reading, and her imagination is very much one of a reader um, and of a writer, someone who is um, kind of living within the realm of story and maybe not so facile with it as a craft, but very familiar with it because in Vesta's life, she was rather limited in her experiences in her like more immediate and visceral world. She had, um, and that became, and, and that discovery about her was made um, sort of in response to her inclination to be inquisitive. You know, it's like if you have an inquisitive character um, and you're thinking about her past, and well, maybe there's good reason for her to be inquisitive now because she couldn't have been inquisitive later. I mean, earlier. So she just kind of told me who she was, and I just wrote down whatever she said, <laughs> tried to make sense of it. And um, and I also felt like I was writing the book with her, told in the first person, and it's about this woman who sets out to solve the mystery, which is basically in the entire first note that you read. What is this mystery of Magda? There's no body. If there was a body, who took it? Um, is it real? Who left the note? She starts asking herself these questions just in the same way a writer would ask them. And she answers them in her imagination, just like a writer would ask herself. And then, through the course of having this inner monologue, she manifests things that she's imagined in real life. So, um, you know, she, she imagines that the person who left this note for her is a teenage boy, and she gives him a name. And then that teenage boy, you know, 20, 30, 40 pages later, appears. Um, and it's just assumed that Vesta got it right. Aha, that must be the Blake that I'm thinking of, Blake. Yeah. So in that sense, like, He's a character sort of written around the creative process of writing. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. she's fascinating. And, and, and also, like, you know, obviously, she and I are, are, are not, we don't have that much in common, you know? But it was cool to have a character who was after the same thing I was, which is telling and inventing an interesting story. So Vesta appears as one thing at the beginning of the book, and then as she in invents an entire life for Magda, that life she's 
beginning to, to invent begins to feel real to her. So um, one thing after another is revealed that shows that her life is not what you thought it was, um, that her husband really held her hostage her entire life, that he cheated on her with young women assistants, and it's only following his death that she finally feels free for the first time in her life. Um, I'd like to ask you to read a section of the, of the book where Vesta visits the local library to do research on solving the crime. Sure. All you really need to know in this passage is that she's, she's sitting in front of a computer in the library, like a public computer, <clears throat> and there's a screensaver. And also that she had had an imagination of these teenagers on another computer. I mean, she sees them and she imagines that they're looking for an abortion clinic. And then she has this imagination of this abortion. Um, it's not a very important moment in the book, but if I didn't tell you that, you might get thrown off by my reading. So I'm just going to um, go ahead then. <clears throat> I should go, I thought. Harley was waiting for me in the car, curled up, I imagined, on the back seat, the heat of his breath fogging up the windows. All I had to do was stand, cross the carpet, and the away of the library where the dust was, and exit through the old red door, walk my footing down to the uneven grid path to the car in the parking lot. But it felt impossible. I felt glued down as though fate had put me in that seat in of that computer. I tried to set my eyes on the swirling words of the picture. Just a second of follow, following around the, the bright glare made my head spin. A wave of heat and a kind of slow thud in my chest like something falling, like a marble candlestick on the mantle hitting the carpeted floor. My heart. Did you forget something? The words were twisting across who had written such a thing? The computer next to me had by then gone black, dead. I thought of the aborted fetus again and felt sick to my stomach. I was probably hungry, my blood sugar low, but I felt very emotional there. I felt a bit like I'd been abandoned in a bad dream. The words rolled by again. My hands began to shake. What was this? What was I forgetting? Magda? This you? What a strange responsibility it was to hold someone's death in my hand. Death seemed fragile with crumpled paper a thousand years old. One false move and I could crush it. Death was like old, brittle lace, the applique about to separate from the fine mesh thread, nearly shredded, hanging there, beautiful and delicate, and about to disintegrate. Life wasn't like that. Life was robust. Life took so much to ruin. One had to beat it out of the body. Even just the slightest seed of life, a fertilized egg, the payment, an expert, a machine, and an industrial vacuum, I heard. Life was persistent. It was there every day. Each morning it woke me up. It was loud and brash, a bully, a lounge singer in a bare sequin dress, a runaway truck, a jackhammer, a brush fire, a canker sore. Death was different. It was tender, a mystery, 
what was it? Why did anybody have to die? Walter, the Jews, how many innocent children? I thought of the pain. How did people go on with their lives with those deaths going all around them? There were theories, heaven, hell, rebirth, and so forth, but did anybody really know? Is there an answer? How unfair it seems to send the living off of the death into the unknown, so cold. Blake must have understood that as well. Blake must have understood as well what a tragedy this was. It was right there in his words. Nobody will ever know who killed her. Why, God? I've been too hard on Blake, I thought. Blake had given my poor Magda a place to rest. He tried his best with all he had, a pen, a spiral notebook, the little black rocks, which I now remember was still in the pocket of my coat. I stuck my hand in and felt them. They were a comfort. They gave me some strength. Her name was Magda. Yes, Blake, you must insist on life, acknowledging, never turn away from the dead. Wonderful. Um, I especially love that line. How do people go on with their lives? as though death weren't all around them. Um, it feels especially meaningful right now. Um, and I'll, I'll ask you, um, how have you been spending this period of isolation? I've been spending this period of isolation at home. And I live in Pasadena, California. And um, <clears throat> I have only left my house a handful of times to be honest and um when the when it became obvious that the um pandemic was going to keep us from living normally um like i had this book that was going to come out in late april and i was going to go on a book tour all around the united states and also to europe and um, you know, it wasn't, I think the information wasn't immediate and we didn't really know what to expect. So it took a while for us all to understand that things weren't going to be happening the way we, we thought it was, um, we thought they were. So once I understood that I was home for the time being, in order to process what was happening all over the planet and happening, I think, on many different levels, I decided that I, or it wasn't so much a decision, but a, I understood that I needed a new project, that this was the beginning of a new time. Um, so I started writing a novel and I'm like, you know, definitely not done, but neither is this situation. So um, I've been working on that every day. I've been reading. I've been spending time with my dog. He must be sick of me. No, not really. Um, and my husband. And um, investigating a lot of my belief systems, honestly. Mm -hmm. And asking myself a lot of questions that I didn't have the time to try to answer. Um, a very personal question about my, myself and what I want and all that stuff, and also like what what is my what does my faith consist of? How's my faith being challenged? You 
know, where have I been limited? Where have I been closed-minded? Where have I been wrong? Where have I been right? You know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as painful as self-confrontation can be, provided that there's an end in sight, like it can actually be very positive. Um, so I've been trying to look on the bright side of, of this experience and fix it to the benefit of my work and my, you know, mental health and my relationship and my relationship with where I live and getting to know like, the birds and the flowers and things like that and slowing down. I heard that uh, your house is called Casa de Pájaros. I read that somewhere. Yeah. And that sounded so beautiful, House of Birds, um, to me. Um, yeah, there are a lot of birds. There are a lot of parrots in this area. Yeah, they make a lot of noise. <laughs> A beautiful yeah. noise. <laughs> we have them here too. Um, so I read something interesting um, that you know when you're going to die. And I just wanted to tell you that I do too. Um, or at least the length of my lifespan, according to Tibetan Buddhism. Um, when a Tibetan astrologer does your chart, they tell you this little bit of information, which kind of freaked me out. But it seemed to make sense that if I knew the time, I could prepare. So Tibetan Buddhism is all about living with death and not being afraid of it. But they believe in reincarnation, of course. Um, I was raised Catholic. Uh, were you raised with any religious beliefs? Do you have any now? I want to respond to that because I think that, um, you know, like I was saying, I've been asking myself a lot of questions lately. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I'm going to die. I thought I knew, but I didn't know. Um, I wasn't really, I wasn't raised with religion, but I was really raised with a kind of belief system because my parents were musicians and, um, you know, I was, I was reading music. I'm pretty sure I was learning how to read music before I learned how to read words like in school. Yeah, music was a music was like a religion. It required, you know, faith, discipline. It was, you know, it could you could reach ecstatic heights of beauty and and peace and understanding. And it was also a way of understanding life and um, you know feeling God. Although. You know, I I would have never put it that way. I and I'm glad that my parents never forced an interpretation of what music is on me. I got to it on my own, kind of through writing, really, and through uh, like when I was more mature, playing. I was a pianist, you know, playing like studying certain pieces of music. I understood their the power. Um. So I wasn't raised with religion, and I have always been very skeptical of organized religion. And I think that skepticism is good to a certain extent. Um, but I am more and more willing these days to be 
organize people put what people get together and organize between one another and agree to believe. I'm I'm interested in that, but I'm not see now I'm creating the margin. I'm out, but I will keep myself in the margin there. <laughs> I want to be an insider. <laughs> not, in, I, I don't want to be in, I, I'm not interested in like being in a, being in an organized religion. So you told us a little bit about your parents. Um, I heard, I read that they were incredibly supportive and that your house was filled with books. Um, I didn't know that they were musicians. I love that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you were growing up and maybe your formation as a reader and a writer, um, when did you, what did you read when you were growing up and what impressed you? And when did you first know that you really wanted to be a writer? Um, I knew I was a writer when I was 13 slash 14. And um, I didn't know that I had had such a privileged experience of literature until like way later but I, I grew up surrounded by books and was reading I mean I was reading like books that I wouldn't expect a nine-year-old to read and I can't say that I understood them when I was a child but I understood that they had great power and that the power in them had to do with the words and the way they were written down <laughs> in what order and the spaces between them kind of the way that you would you know listen to a piece of music and not quite grasp its meaning um because music can be so abstract especially if it's you know there are it's not being sung with words um which is the kind of music that I played, but, you know, wordless music. Um, but, I, but I absorbed a lot at that age. Like, as, you know, growing up like 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, reading just intuitively. Um, and then when I was 13, I spent the summer away from home and I started writing letters. <clears throat> I mean, I had written already, you know, just in school, but never for myself. And, we, and when I started writing letters to my like, really good friends back home, um, there was something that I, I remember kind of like touching it for the first time, like touching my, my talent, I guess, or my love for writing to be less. But it was really like I discovered that this is what I was going to do, what I, I wanted to do. And then I just pursued it in, in, in a way that was um, right for me. Um, so you wrote the foreword to a collection of stories by Shirley Jackson, Dark Tales. Um, I love Shirley Jackson, and she's very much in vogue right now. Um, I bought this particular edition because of you. Um, and you write, it's often unclear in these stories whether the eerie peaks and turns 
are happening in the mind or in actuality. When I first got the galley for death in her hands, the first thing I thought of was Shirley Jackson. I wonder, did her writing have an influence on you? Um, you know, what's so funny is that ever since I published Eileen, people have been um, connecting me to Shirley Jackson. Um, and I think it's so interesting the way that like, we want to create lineage as a because it's like creating history. And um, I am sorry to say that I did not read Shirley Jackson until I read the stories in that short story collection. And I had not read Shirley Jackson when I wrote Death in Her Hands, which I wrote in 2015. So she wasn't a direct influence, but like we all influence everything. So I don't know. You have a great sense of humor. And I'm often laughing out loud as I read you, um, laughing at how absurd things can be. Uh, but we're sometimes tricked by laughter into thinking something is light, uh, but it's actually loaded. How do, you view, how do you view humor and how do you work with it? I think humor is right next to intelligence. Um, I, I mean, I guess I should specify what kind of intelligence, like intelligence, or so like existential intelligence, maybe. I don't know. But for me, they're, they're like really, really related. Mm -hmm. um, like, like the quest for truth loses all its meaning unless you can humanize the quester, the person who's on the quest, you know, and humanity is so, descriptions of humanity are by nature fraught with absurdity and hilarity because we are constantly changing our minds and we are constantly looking back at the past. And I think that like what humor does or can do, and I'm speaking very abstractly, is give us perspective, um, you know, perspective on yesterday or perspective on five minutes ago or perspective on that other person in a way that um, affects us chemically so that we need to like expel joy or something, you know, like it's that powerful. That perspective is really powerful. And um, so, and perspective is really power, like a powerful element in understanding anything because, you know, we wouldn't understand anything without it. We wouldn't be able to see without perspective. It, we would just be lost in the muck of confusion. Um, you know, it's like when you start thinking about, you know, when people talk about like the beginning of time and space and matter, like there was one particle and that particle wanted to experience itself. So it broke in half and created a second particle. So they, and like, you know, there's everything. You know, now suddenly there's a relationship. You know, that's, that's a drama 
and I mean, yeah, I mean, I could talk forever about this, but um, my specific relationship to comedy um, is that I grew up uh, as much as I say I, I consume books, I also consume an enormous amount of television, enormous, like more than you could ever imagine. Um, and a lot of the television that I consumed was, you know, beyond like the sitcoms and uh, like talk shows was stand-up comedy. Mm. And um, so stand-up comedy in the late 80s and early 90s were hugely influential in the way that I think about timing, dialogue, mm -hmm. characterization, mm -hmm. voice, you know, if you read my novels, you'll see that everything is written in the first person. It's like monologue. It's like delivery. It's a performance. And that meshed perfectly with the way that I understood music. Um, you know, like a piece, a story, a book, a song, a set. It's a performance and you deliver it to the viewer, listener, reader, audience, whatever. And your job as a, as a creative person is to visit the sense of spontaneous genius. I mean, no one wants to read something that looks late, that reads as though it's been belabored. No one wants to watch a comedian do a joke that is so by rote and automatic and practiced that it feels like like all the all the juice has gone out. Mm -hmm. And if you want to go see a performance, you want that performance of music, acting, whatever, to look inspired. Like it's happening for you in that moment. And that's what craft is for, is to get so good at doing something that you can read it a million times. And each time it's like it happens for the first time. Mm -hmm. So that's how my attitude toward writing like in creative writing developed especially watching these stand-up comedians you know because sometimes i would see the same they would, they would show a rerun you know and i'd see it again um anyway well you nail you nail it over and over again i mean dr tuttle you know those just all of it is just so incredibly funny thank you um so you're talking about television, um, and I've read that you you're working on screenplays. Um, I'm hoping they're adaptations of your books. I hope. Um, are you a film lover? Can you share with us a few films that you love and why? And how is it writing in that form versus writing novels or short stories? I mean, I love so many movies. I'm way easier on a movie than I am on a book. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think probably my first favorite movie was Back to the Future mm -hmm. and then maybe Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade. I mean, as a kid growing up, um, I, I have been through like great obsessions with different movements in film. I'm trying to think of like the last movie that I thought was amazing. I think... I think actually like movies used to be, I mean, we need, 
there's a lot of necessary progress being made and I know that like art and technology are not always synced up but it seems to me like there hasn't like American cinema used to be much more experimental I mean it has a lot to do with like the studio systems and everything but I have a hard time liking movies that I go to see in the theater. Like I find myself, like my taste is more, I don't even know what to call it, random. Oh, I'll, I'll say one movie. There, There is a movie called Lady Macbeth. Sure. That's um, great. With Florence Pugh. Yeah. By yeah. A British filmmaker named William Oldroyd. And uh, he made it for half a million dollars. Great movie. It's beautiful. I love it. It's beautiful. Did you ever see The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Yeah, of course. I love Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, I think that has something to do with your work. <laughs> oh, thank you. Connection. Yeah. He, he, lives, work. he lives in the same town as I do. And I always wonder, like, I'll see him, like, putting a letter in a mailbox or something. <laughs> I don't know what he looks like. So you're working on screenplays, though. Yeah. You're working on some. Okay. Good. And I and they are adaptations of your books. A couple of them. Awesome. I, I didn't realize that you had studied art and that you were a student of Rachel Harrison and that you were in her sculpture class. Um, and the protagonist of my in my year of rest and relaxation works at a gallery in Chelsea. Um, can you tell us a little bit just I wanted to ask you about what role visual arts play in your life? Sure. Um, not that much anymore, or not that much right now, but, um, I grew up studying art, like, from a very young age, um, and was never so talented that I, or passionate about it, that I wanted to pursue it formally. I mean, although I did, I mean, I took a lot of classes, but I'm not, I'm not, um, ambitious in that way. The class I took with Rachel Harrison was total luck. This was in 19, or 1999 or 2000. I mean, at the very beginning of her career. And um, she was like a fascinating person. Not so, it didn't even really matter that um, the class that I was taking from her was with a sculpture class. It was just being in, being in conversation with an artist who had such a specific point of view mm -hmm. and was going to take herself really, really seriously um, and take her work as seriously and, and as rigorous as she was. And um, that was just exciting in itself, but um, she's, she's the person who really introduced me to like contemporary art, like art, new art, new art made by artists that are currently living. Um, and I only spent a semester with her. I mean, she just kind of opened my eyes. Um, you know, I love going to museums. I love painting. I'm a big fan of paintings. Um, I'm a terrible painter. Terrible. My husband is a very talented painter, <laughs> in, intuitively talented painter, and I'm not. Hmm. Um, I'm looking at a painting of his right now. 
when I was reading and watching interviews in preparation for this talk, I came upon one in particular that seemed to capture you in an entirely unique way. And it's titled Vanity is the Enemy. Um, and it's by a writer named Luke Gogol. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yeah. Okay. Um, I know that you're now, you and Luke are now married. Um, but is that where you met and fell in love? Because the sparks that were flying <laughs> in that particular interview and just the way that he got you and the things he got you to say and the, the, the whole repartee was, was talk about vibrational. It just like, boom. and then I really feel like there's a passage at the end um, that I don't know if you'll allow me to read, but I feel like it's a lot. It really captures you. And I know people say you're dark, which is true. You're dark, but you're also fragile and tender. But yeah. you're, but basically this is the passage. Um, it's really hard to break free of the categories that are prescribed to you. And I feel so bad for millennials. God, they just had their universe handed to them in hashtags. Our conception of God is a master-slave relationship, and it's been bred into our DNA for thousands of years, and it's going to kill us. I understand not everyone is going to feel happy reading my work. That's fine. I'm not going to kill myself. I love being alive. I love myself. I love my imagination. I love my life. I love a lot of people. I love the planet. I'm an optimist. I'm not going to be Kurt Cobain or David Foster Wallace and be like, this world sucks and I don't want to be here. I'm not like that at all. I have a lot of love for this world. You know what I mean? Do you still feel that way? Not exactly. Can't wait to read whatever's next. So again, for thank you for your beautiful answers and thank you for being a part of this. Much, much appreciated. 